I used to write letters to my mum from the places to which I'd travelled. At first I was trying to allay whatever fears she might have had about the strife I was getting into, because she watched the news far too often, and she believed that all the continents on earth, everywhere other than Tasmania, must be war-torn and terrorised. And maybe she was worried that my travels would wind up on the television, especially if I died in some exotic distant country, which would be sad, of course, but also awkward, because what would the neighbours think? I soon realised that my letter had little effect on her, especially when I wrote that all was well, and I had only met friendly people, and I'd given up beer, in fact, and now only drank cups of peppermint tea. Perhaps she didn't believe me, and thought that I'd laid down a veneer of falsehoods over a much more sordid reality. I thought long and hard about this, and so decided to change my technique. And thus one morning I hunched over a scrap of paper with my pen poised above it, and wrote, Dear Mother, You won't believe the mess I've gotten myself into. The story I told at length in that letter was that I had been lured into trouble by a woman of great beauty. Everything seemed to be going swimmingly until she invited me on a boat tour of the Euphrates River. Well, the Euphrates is in the Bible, isn't it? And knowing my mum's general demeanour of holiness, I thought she'd be disappointed if I didn't go and have a squiz at such a sacred river. And so I went to check it out. But as I got on the boat with the guide, I started to feel dozy, as if I had been drugged. And when I awoke, I was alone, drifting unimpeded towards an island which I recognised as the Island of Heat. One of a series of islands scattered throughout the river. And heat sits deep within the borders of Iraq, which, as my mother may not actually have known, was at the time pitted with the hideouts of extremists, one of their last strongholds in the region. You must think I worried my poor mother half to death. But actually I later wondered if I hadn't made her feel envious instead, because although my mum has little to no interest in having anything to do with the Middle East... An island of heat, of warmth, of temperatures of 30 and above. These have been part of my mother's dreams, vocalised often since I was a child at least. In fact, in our living room there was a photographic print mounted on a board of some tropical island, probably in the Pacific. The picture has us, the viewer, looking out through some palms over a beach towards a vast stretch of sea. It's still in the same room these days, in fact. Bleached a murky blue by too many years in too much sunlight. And its longevity in that position makes me wonder if it is not the archetypal image I have of the island of heat. Instead of the unfortunate lump of rock in the Euphrates of which I wrote to my mother all those years ago now. Mum has in the past loved her cruises. And for some years, she and her fella went on the same cruise ship to a Pacific archipelago. In fact, her only overseas journeys have been to such islands. Fiji, Numea, 
the Isle of Pines. I do not know much of what has gone on when Mum and her fella have made landfall on these specific islands, although I can tell you heaps about what can be eaten at the buffet on board the cruise ship. And although I am a bit iffy about the mechanism of getting there, I am glad that Mum's life has at last passed through these places, that were once just the stuff of dreams. She seems to have enjoyed herself, because before they became impossible she took the same cruise ship about ten times over. These days she has another set of images from such tropical islands around her house, complementing the original archetypal picture. My favourites are two that have clearly been taken on her partner's digital camera. Photos that are of someone else's photo. Perhaps even a poster or a picture on a plaque. And the shots are out of focus. So they're just a smudge of light blue, crystal white and lime green. These abstracted prints are framed next to the front door in my mum's home, and I feel they give as clear an image as any of the experiences they have had on their journeys into the Pacific. And in the meantime, I still think often of the island of heat, the one in the Euphrates River in Iraq, to which I have never been, but which I wrote about. Someday, I suppose, I should set foot on it, and see what happens when an imagined version of a place is forced to commingle with the real patch of earth. Because it seems that islands tend to blend together in the mind, and yet each is entirely different. More different, perhaps, than two beach towns tend to be, or two woodlands, or two farm paddocks. Island conditions are essentially unique and they create idiosyncratic island customs. Yet islanders also share ways of doing things, and there may be such a thing as islandness, an ecumenical way of being that is common to those who live on islands. And so it is that I dedicate these stories to all those who live on Crete, Greenland, Galiwinku, Cyprus, Flores, Flinders Island, the Malvinas, the Maldives, Sardinia, Malta, Andaman and Nicobar, Svalbard, Sakhalin, the Isle of Pines, and indeed, the Island of Heat, etc., etc. All the islands of the earth, and indeed, all the islands of the mind as well. In Copenhagen, I met Uli, 
an academic in the field of literature. And for several mornings in a row we had coffee together and talked on and on about books, among other things. Of course I got to describing the island on which I lived. And on our last morning together, Willie said that she now had a picture of Tasmania that was surely a work of pure fantasy. She started to reflect back to me the images I'd conjured up for her. Black rivers and secretive creeks. Paddocks of pale mauve poppies. Archaic slow-growing pines. Palm-like bushes that grew in snow-dusted mountainsides. Surely, she said, this is not like the real place in which you live. I was afraid to say that it was. Although truth be told, there are countless places in Tassie which are not picturesque. Perhaps I had embellished a little its uniform beauty, stretched out its loveliness so that it embraced even the garage-covered suburbs or monoculture plantation forests. I did not mention eroded hillsides or weed-filled rivulets, polluted dams or quarried woods. But it is still true that on this island I have seen the most majestic things, flora and fauna and topography, things that could be described as gorgeous, uncanny and serendipitous all at once. And I had not even included everything within the bounds of the Tasmanian landmass, There had been no comment on the 40-spotted pardalote, for instance, or of greenhood orchids, of rare minerals and unusual individual human beings. Back then I didn't even say that on this island of mine people might even choose to live in train carriages if they wished. You see, I showed some restraint. This, of course, was long before I was to be confined to the island for quite a while. And by now it's a tired cliché to say how Tasmania became a locus of luck by the good grace and pure chance of geography over these past couple of years. It lasted a good while. I would dip into news headlines, as you do, and ask after friends in other parts of the world but distance obscured this situation in a haze, and the circumstances reduced my abilities to empathise with these others so far from me. Had I tried, I would have fallen into pure fiction. I don't normally feel bad about that, but it seemed unfair to make up stories given the situation, because the fact was that old friends seemed to be becoming strangers. At one point in the midst of all this, Uli wrote to me. I don't remember which wave of COVID she was then facing, but she wrote with a certain tone that was hard to miss. So things are entirely normal down there, she asked. Your island is floating around amidst the oceans of the southern hemisphere, oblivious even to its closest neighbours, And you don't miss the visitors. You don't feel like you should participate in this moment of history. You don't feel like one of us.
In my reply, I quoted the writer Nicholas Shakespeare, who once said that distance was a great aid to rascals. And I added that the nature of an island also gives assistance to those of us who are insular, who take some advantage from isolation. No wonder so many of us are writers, hermits, outcasts, subversives, and people on the run, who have taken on false identities or pseudonyms in order to get through life. We would never have asked for these circumstances, I said. But they are not that dissimilar from some that we might have dreamed up once or twice in our heads. Because it was not as if she knew nothing about islands. Copenhagen is the capital of a small peninsular nation with satellite islands all around it. Uli had told me her grandmother lived on Bornholm, and there cultivated a strangeness that she reckoned could only come from serious insularity. Her gran, you see, had this extensive garden of succulents that suffered from sea breezes and storms year in, year out. And she had a pet cat whose dish was placed on the dinner table next to her own every night. And each Christmas throughout Uli's childhood she had heard instead of any traditional fable or carol, her grandmother's reading of a particular Hans Christian Andersen story, to the point that although she never believed in Santa Claus, she was quite certain about the existence of the Snow Queen. Uli had told me that there was a word in Danish for the condition one finds themselves in when they're left alone for too long, for what happens when you live on an island. And I was starting to wonder as the days drew near to the opening of my island's borders, if I had not succumbed entirely to this ailment, if I wasn't now subsumed in this strange dream of the past couple of years, of being so far removed from panic and mainlanders, of having Tasmania to ourselves, of leaving national parks and roads empty, and perhaps if our borders had stayed closed a little longer, of seeing property prices drop to some reasonable level. I worried that I'd descended into island madness. And so I went for a long walk to some mountains in the central districts of Tasmania. I clambered up a tall pile of grey stone and looked out at what I could see. The land was divided with lakes as bright as lapis lazuli. Mountain ranges glowed gold in every direction, and from the summit I could see, beyond belts of forest and clumps of stone, a long way off, the shimmering bronze of the sea. I knew within all the folds and faults of the landmass around me there were stories so extravagant that you could say they must be mythical. Yarns that are ancient and colourful and full of strange coincidences. And yet they are the true history of the place. Oddities of evolution intertwined with human cultures, all developed purely and solely because it had been islanded for ten millennia, left abandoned in an unlikely location on the surface of the earth. And so I wrote to Uli. You who live in the major cities of the earth, in the mainstream of existence, among all oh, so many people. You must be the ones who suffer from unsound minds, 
not us. But I won't hold it against you. They tell me that the borders are now open, Uli, and if you like, you could come here. But know that every word I have said about this place is true, and it does not so much seem like madness to want to celebrate and protect this unlikely, precarious position on the planet. Go and ask your grandmother on Bornholm. She'll tell you how it is. I introduced myself to geography as a young lad, and so I learned slowly that while I came from an island, not everybody did. Actually, I protested this last fact at first on a technicality, for if an island is just terrain of whatever kind surrounded by a body of water, isn't all land part of a chain of islands, the one sprawling archipelago? For even the conjoined landmass that tries to pass itself off as three separate continents, I'm talking about Europe and Asia and Africa, even this is still a solid and contiguous portion of the earth with ocean all around it. I guess I was a bit of a brat. An isiological map is never completely settled. Islands do appear spontaneously from time to time requiring new charts, perhaps creating havoc on the water. I know, for instance, that Indonesia and Iceland can both boast fresh land masses, just some decades old, as a result of their spurting volcanoes. And I was told not long ago that it's possible that volcanic activity off the coast of Australia could give us a new island soon too. The friend who mentioned this didn't give me too much detail, but she's a good researcher. I trust her. We discussed the ramifications of this one day. What would Australia do with a little bit of extra land, however many kilometres offshore? You shudder to think about it, really. Of course, the mineralogists would get there first. They'd go looking desperately for valuable rocks, some seam of copper or iron that happened by geological chance in the gaseous combustion of that volcano's inner chambers. If no mineral commodities turned up, the land speculators would surely be next. But who would subsequently want a patch of bare stone in the sea? Well, plenty of us, I guess. It could wind up being a new airport or a launch pad for interspace flights. There could be some housing commission flats built there. 
Or perhaps it could become some kind of model village or doomed commune. Or commuter suburbs for whatever the nearest city is. But almost definitely, we concluded, it would become an Airbnb. Or a jail. Somewhere to cast off prisoners or else innocent asylum seekers. Why not all of the above? In turn, I mentioned this to a friend of mine, a struggling writer of fantasy fiction, who had ideas of his own. His private dystopia involved the Australian government deciding to dump our recycling out there, the stuff that some of the markets of Southeast Asia will no longer collect on our behalf. Cans of aluminium and steel, corrugated cardboard, glass bottles and jars, old newspapers, plastics soft and hard. Very soon after that I saw a short story he'd written, which he'd had published online, no doubt unpaid, which involved our hypothetical island at the heart of his plot. It was a kind of Robinson Crusoe castaway sort of story. The protagonist was a middle-aged man not too dissimilar to the writer himself, wrinkling rapidly, with the shaggy greying beard of a bloke who's given up and doleful sunken eyes and a general melancholy about him. He sets himself up on a journey by a homemade canoe he had cobbled together, but he gets caught in an unexpected current, which in turn takes him to this island of garbage, a basalt crag now covered in the debris of the 21st century, craft beer tinnies and broken glasses, discarded packaging for oil or spices or toilet paper, so on, so forth. And all he has is an emergency kit to keep him alive. He figures he'll be able to hitch back when the next consignment of recycling is deposited there, but little does he know that the bags of rubbish are dumped by a drone from some height, guided to land on the island by GPS software. And he realises eventually that he is alone, and so starts trying to stretch out the few provisions in his emergency bag. And then he begins to feel some trepidation at being stuck on Trash Island forevermore. I shouldn't bother reciting the details of his yarn anymore. I mean, the bloke makes a shack out of plastiglomerate, that is, melted down plastic and ash residue and chunks of rock. And then he ties together plastic bags to stand as a makeshift flag, It's not the best plot as far as island stories go, but strange plots do abound on islands in real life too. As I said, the map is always changing. Volcanic effluvia creates new land. So too coral reefs lifting out of the deep. Likewise, islands can go under, and indeed they will as sea levels rise. Glacial melt has reshaped the map a number of times. And those who currently live on low-lying islands must be watching the ocean charts reshape themselves as ice is forced to hastily liquefy around the planet. Such borders have become ever so porous and permeable. Governments are making plans to evacuate entire populations, and the foreboding sense for most of us is that something rather dystopian awaits us. After all, we have treated land badly and we have broken trust with the sea. It's a situation as far-fetched and far worse than any science fiction writing my mate might have come up with.
legend has it that there's an island in a lake on a walking track in the Tasmanian highlands on which, on a lucky day, and if you're game enough to swim out there in the cool temperature of an alpine lake, you might just find a beer. The Isle of Ale, they call it. A mysterious and magical place. Truth be told, the tradition goes like this. Bushwalking guides would bring a tinny, swim it out to the lake and leave it there. And if fate was in your favour, one of our colleagues would have left a beer there for you too. So then you could drink it out there, in your undies on this rocky little isle, beneath the stubby pencil pines and deciduous beach, while your punters finished off their lunch and waited impatiently for their guide to return from this futile excursion, having gained precisely nothing from it. There is another island in another lake, not so far from the one known as the Isle of Ale, although its story is somewhat more serious and intriguing. I went there a couple years back with a cobber of mine. We walked cross-country from the south, into the thickest of scrubs, a wicker work of tight branches and pernicious spikes, tea tree and prickly currant and bower. It turned out that we could have walked to the lake along a lightly beaten track, through much more mild-mannered vegetation, but we'd missed a turn off and, being experienced bushwalkers, we had decided not to turn back, but instead push headlong and wrong-headedly into the hellish welter of that patch of bush. Such are the virtues of being experienced, I guess. Anyway, it was a relief to suddenly emerge on the crest of a hill and see the broad sheet of water ahead of us. And within its bounds was the island, all shimmering greens against the beige-grey and charcoal shades of the plateau's flora, a bounty of fat pencil pines and bushy myrtles, a refuge of rainforest species. My mate had a little blow-up raft, he filled it with air and we loaded the packs onto it, and he paddled across. I stripped off to a pair of dirty white footy shorts and dived into the bracing cold water. It's probably only 20 metres across from one rocky headland to the other, but I felt as triumphant as a channel swimmer. To at last have made it onto the island, there was no better way to arrive than this. Barely clad, shivering, with a big grin on my face didn't have my glasses on, but I could vaguely pick out the shape of the hut, so I strode barefoot across the uneven terrain towards it. My mate was almost there. We reached it at the same time, but I soon saw that he wasn't as exultant as me. There's a camera back there, he said, gesturing to where he'd landed the raft. The bloody bastards. They're watching us. The hut on the island in that national park had once been open to all comers, to those bushwalkers who had gone far enough out of their way to reach this part of an unpopulated country. A generous treasure, a remnant of an old way of doing things. It had been built by a keen and cluey rover of the bush, a canny and skilful romantic soul who loved open landscapes and fishing trips and late nights by the fire. Such details are also part of the story of the island in the lake. And let us not forget that there are people who have long belonged to the land there, and have left as evidence carved stone and charred wallaby bones. And now there was friggin' surveillance. 
We had prepared ourselves for three days on the island, and although we were unnerved by the camera, we decided to stick around. We well knew they might be our last and only chance to set foot here. There were plans to turn it into a private resort, where only the very wealthy could make landfall, arriving not as I had, or as my mate did, barefoot and in filthy shorts or in an inflatable pack raft, but by helicopter. That afternoon I found in the scrub a water-stained printout of the plans. To my eyes it was just another trend-following, bland, narrow-minded tourism project plonked on top of a place with proper yarns to spin, an island with something interesting to say, its subtle voice to be smothered with technology. My mate and I drank whiskey at sunset and felt prematurely nostalgic. Think of the dickheads, my mate said, standing here like us, feeling chuffed with themselves for choppering in here, because they paid a few grand to get somewhere no one else is allowed to go. He shook his head. Think of them rich fuckers. Islands seem to be particularly susceptible to being taken by force or cunning or plain old money. Think of world history, of the colonial past, of the capitalist present. Islands everywhere are stormed, seized, usurped. Flags are pitched into them against their will, and private golf courses and hotels are built all over them. Somehow it comes easily to outsiders to try and claim the stories of an island and turn them inside out, to take their meaning and make them mutate, to mutilate them. And so my mate and I left that place on the third day with heavy hearts. It's hard to leave somewhere knowing you may never be able to come back, and even worse when the only reason you wouldn't be able to return is because someone had pinched it from you. The island on the lake would change before we got another glimpse of it, and it had been a place that for us represented much of what we love about the Tasmanian bush. A site of absolute liberty and creativity, where the plants and animals and even we could show off our skills and our free will far away from the intrusion of commerce or advertising, cement slabs or helicopters. That, by the way, is close to my definition of wilderness, but that's another conversation. My cobber kayaked over again. I swam back across, and we hiked the easier route out of there this time. The hut faded from view, sublimed from reality into memory. But we have both held it close as the years have passed, as so many have, and we have joined together over the years to tell our stories of that place, and to continue to dream that it might survive unchanged. We have learnt much. In that national park, there is a loophole through which greedy buggers will someday try again to sneak through to make a buck from what should be our shared heritage. Yet news came to us in the past couple of weeks that after several years of opposition, these tourism operators have dropped their application to foist their ugly idea onto that island. For now... It seems 
the plan for a private resort up there is up shit creek as they say Lake Malbina may still belong to us all its meaning may well be preserved its story's there for anyone who wants to take the long way in to the island on the lake I have read that in Polynesia there are navigators who, having gone through some sort of initiation, are said to be able to conjure up islands from the ocean. This may strike some of us as a tad too miraculous for our liking, a bit spiritual or superstitious. And yet the history of the Polynesian navigators cannot be reduced to anything less wondrous, even when you give a Western scientist's gloss on it for they suggest that these sailors managed to navigate by a complete memorization of the catalogue of stars, as well as intense readings of wave patterns and training from birth of marine rhythms, on top of plain skill in dead reckoning and a willingness to stay awake for almost the entire duration of long voyages. To anyone it must look like such heroes can indeed pluck an island from the deep at will. I regret to tell you that I have undergone no such initiation. Yet I have my own technique for conjuring up islands too. I don't bust it out too often, but it's there when I need it. And so it was that I was forced to use my powers just the other day, when a friend showed up with a handful of kids in tow. You see, no matter how much I try... No amount of scowling or swearing seems to drive away these little blighters. They hang off me. They eat my biscuits. They run me absolutely bloody ragged and finally I have to find some way to slow them down and shut them up. Somehow. Anyhow. I try to direct them to my books. The less elegant editions, you know. Just the ratty old paperbacks I got from the tip shop. Or even better, something laminated so I can wipe their grubby fingerprints off it. But they claim they cannot understand Horace's odes or the prose of Gertrude Stein. And so in a last desperate effort, I pull out one of the crates I have under my couch. A box of maps that represents the vast majority of the world. Countries in many colours. Multi-layered charts that speak of the past as well as the present all the continents in a continuous unfurling. The kids point clumsily. They say, what's that place? Have you ever been there? 
Did you ever climb that mountain? And I find myself against my will telling them stories. But so few of my stories are fit for children's ears. Oh yes, my friends, I did climb that mountain. And in a hut on the side I shared a bottle of vodka with a friend and we got so drunk that in the morning, just one contour line from the summit I vomited my breakfast right up. Why, yes, you little ruffians, I have travelled on that road. I hitchhiked along it one very hot summer's day because there was a hint of flirtation in the text message a woman sent me. She said she had the apartment to herself, you see. Now, obviously, I was getting desperate. Where my mate had gotten to, I don't know, but I had to come up with something to get these rat bags to give me a break. So I closed my eyes and summoned up my special force. I lifted up the map, hoping to put my finger on a bit of it that would yield a less salacious or incriminating sort of story. And lo and behold, I pointed to a spot right out there in the stretch of blue. There's nothing there, the kid said. I thought you told us you weren't a famous Polynesian navigator. But when I looked a little closer, I saw that I had actually put a spot down there accidentally, as I'd pressed my fingertip to the map. Come on, look better. Can't you see that little blonde island there, I said. It was a biscuit crumb, but they didn't know that. That's the island of skinks, I said. I held the map very still and began to recount how once upon a time a family of skinks had been on one of the mainland masses out there to the, let's say, the west. They lived near the coast, enjoying the sweet nectar of tropical flowers all year round, but one afternoon they got themselves a bit excited by a sticky, sappy, sugary flower attached to a branch that had fallen right on the shoreline. They were all having a go licking it up, mum, dad and the kids when a freak wave came crashing down on them, and they almost drowned, but they clung on and got drawn out into the ocean, this branch with its tasty blossom now their boat. And they were pushed away from their home and out into the middle of the ocean. After a long time at sea, days, weeks, years, who knows... The perception of time is not an objective fact anyway, children, I said. And who are you to say what feels like a long time to a skink, hmm? And after this long period of time, the currents and winds and whatever else goes on at sea, it all pushed the little boat along to this tiny, biscuity speck in the middle of the ocean. But surely the trade winds would blow them in the other direction, one of the rummans said. To which I replied, Oh, look, sometimes the trade winds swing around. They don't blow the same direction all year long, you little git. Stop interrupting. Anyway, it was a small edifice of crumbly stone, a little molto milk slowly disintegrating in the oceanic conditions. It was almost entirely barren, but there were some tufts of greenery growing out on a bit of guano on the top. And so the skink family deduced that every now and again, albatross would come flying through here, and they'd deposit a seed within their shit as they soared past. Some of the vegetation was flowering, and Mama Skink mustered up the courage to taste it, because, you know, it might have been poisonous and all. But actually it was bloody yummy, and so she told the kids to dig in. 
and you know they might not have chosen this island retreat, but they came to feel at home there. They had everything they needed to become healthy, happy skinks. And the mama and papa skinks kept at it, you know what I mean? They grew the tribe, they reproduced, there wasn't much privacy, but that didn't stop them, and over the years that clan of skinks got bigger and bigger. I suppose there would have been some issues with the gene pool, but... You know, each generation became slightly better adapted to life on the rock island until eventually, had a scientist been present to look a little closer, it would have been discovered that they were mutating into a distinct subspecies. Or maybe their own special, skinky species. But then, after countless years had passed, something very dramatic happened. An albatross flew through and instead of simply depositing its feces, it swooped in and picked up one of the juicy young skinks, one of the kids, and carried it off in its beak. But the young skink, he had a bit of fight in him, and he wriggled and squirmed his way out of the beak and then clambered onto the cranium of his captor, and he clung on for dear bloody life with those grubby little paws, or whatever you call a skink's hands gripping tenaciously at the head feathers of the albatross, and eventually the albatross approached land. The skink could see it was some other island. With trepidation, he thought about the variety of skink that had evolved to that particular landmass. Would they welcome him? Would they fight him? Could he communicate with them? Would they be able to help him get back to his little crumb of an island out in the sea? Whatever the case... This spunky skink knew that he had no other choice but to take his chances on this new island. So as the albatross glided into land on the beach, the skink slid off and set out to explore. Well? Now these kids were looking up at me with terrible suspense. What happened next, they said. I wrinkled up my forehead a gesture that gets easier and easier as the years go on, and I put a wistful look upon my face. And I looked each of these children in their awful, innocent faces and barked, I don't bloody know. I was never very good with endings. But you know what? There are skinks everywhere in the yard here at the train carriage. And I reckon if you go crawling out in the dirt with them, And if you're very gentle with them and ask real nicely, one of these skinks will be able to fill you in on the rest. And then and only then can you come back and you tell me what the hell happened with this skink when it set itself down on that different island far from home. I'm not just being modest. I'm really not great at endings. I get near to the conclusion and then find myself carrying on to the next yarn, as if every end might really be just another beginning. As if each story is not a separate entity, an island, but is in fact connected infinitely throughout the memory and imagination of all space and time. 